When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. On Commons People this week, has coronavirus peaked? The worst thing that we could do right now is to ease up too soon. The lockdown's hidden victims. It's the perpetrators who should be the ones that have to leave the family homes and not the supposed loved ones whom they torment and abuse. And Keir Starmer enters the fray. I'm disappointed we don't have a number for social care workers and I've put the First Secretary on notice that I'll ask the same question again next week. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul, back from your break. How was the holiday in coronavirus times i think the word holiday isn't quite the right word for uh, (laughs) being in your back garden but um yeah glad to be back at work put it that way good uh rachel wearmouth's also here hello hiya hi rachel how you doing and we're we're delighted to be joined by the shadow minister for domestic violence jess phillips hello hi jess how's uh how's lockdown treating you uh, well, we did go on holiday at the Easter weekend to our back garden. We went camping in our back garden and we, we made the kitchen into a pub. Um, <laughs> good days and bad days. This week, I just, I, I'm getting a bit tired of it. But other times, I'm grateful to be at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's pu- who was pulling the pints down the down the Phillips pub? My 11-year-old son, Danny. (laughs) Um, Pressure is growing on the government to say how and when the UK will exit its coronavirus lockdown. Some scientists say we've passed the peak of the epidemic in early April, while the health secretary, Matt Hancock, says we're currently at it. But the government is refusing to set out an exit strategy and the public has been warned that social distancing may need to last for the rest of the year with a vaccine or effective treatment some way off. Let's hear Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty on this. I think we have to be very realistic that if people are hoping that it's suddenly going to move from where we are now in lockdown suddenly into everything's gone, that is a wholly unrealistic expectation. We're going to have to do a lot of things for really quite a long period of time. The question is, what is the best package? And this is what we're trying to work out. Um, Paul, why isn't the government being straight with us about their exit strategy for the lockdown? Do they have a plan or not? I think that they obviously do have a plan. They're just not telling people about it. Um, now, on one level, you can say, why why don't they trust the British public to be grown up and to level with them that, you know, give us a rough 
sort of idea of when and a rough idea of what it'll look like this lo- this lockdown no one's expecting to change overnight are they um but people are expecting you know to have some clue are the kids going to go be able to go back to school in the, in the next half term uh, are they going to be able to go on a summer holiday to look forward to you know um all the sort of basic things but also more importantly how long will the lockdown last for your if you know if if you are really dependent on self-employment or other forms of employment and you're you're relying on universal credit or whatever then you you really desperately want some kind of clues to what the future will look like um so far they've been reluctant to even talk about it because they think as soon as you talk about it people are going to suddenly start relaxing their measures um um and so that that's the political problem they've got at the moment and and Keir Starmer as well within his rights to keep saying well people need to know a bit more than you're telling them yeah, Jess, I can see you shaking your head there when Paul said uh, people might not follow the social distancing measures if, if the government set out a strategy. Yeah, I, do, I just don't believe that's the case. I think that the people who are already probably not paying the full attention that they should be will continue not to. But I think that the the idea of governing this by consent has worked. The British people have uh, become you know, really, really reasonably compliant. And I I see that in my constituents. I see it, you know, on my streets. My husband, um, who I think has only left the house twice since we went on lockdown, uh, I said to him the other day, I was like, you know, you're not a natural rule taker, you know, you're a bit of a nihilist, really. I'm, I'm stunned that you've done this. And he just said, look, if you're going to do something, you should do it really well. So he's committing to doing lockdown really well. And I think that the vast majority of people feel part of this. They feel part of the government's solution. Um, and they want to continue to keep feeling like they're doing their bit of social distancing. And I don't think there are m- many concerns in talking about it as somebody who has uh, a son in year 10 I have absolutely no idea what his next year looks like he's taking his GCSEs next year and I cannot help but think that not just that he will have the deficit but he goes to the local comprehensive school where there are you know lots and lots of children who won't be in the position my son is in of having me breathing down his neck and that we need some answers for some of these questions or at least an idea of what the thinking is what 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 is the planning is there planning going into it because just as a parent let alone as an mp i don't know the answer to what my son's fate is next year yeah just do you think it's becoming kind of less sustainable this position as the deaths come down, the cases come down, we we pass the peak. Yeah, I think it is becoming um, less sustainable. I wouldn't say that the British people are clamouring for it desperately. I don't get hundreds of emails saying, when is this going to end or anything? Like I say, I think people are compliant. I haven't had a single email like that. I do, as Paul has said, get lots of concerns about people's livelihoods, their incomes and their children. That seems to be the two real areas where I think that as the death toll starts to come down around schools and safety, um, especially of vulnerable children, and the issue of the self-employed is going to start to rear its head. Now, we're going to come to the end of the furlough, what was designed as the furlough scheme soon. Uh, the months seem to be rushing by. Um, so it's we do need to have some idea that there is some thinking into the the, the hereafter going on. Uh, yeah, Rachel, the government was um, absolutely slammed this week in the Sunday Times expose over failings on securing PPE tests and for imposing the lockdown too late. 
And uh, something of a blame game uh, appears to have emerged since that article with Matt Hancock in the firing line, especially. Yeah, the health the health secretary has really been getting it in, in the neck over the last few days. And I think I think a lot of his problems could be traced back to this sort of over-promising and under, under-delivering. I mean, uh, a couple of weeks back now, he said by the end of April, they would have 100,000 tests in place. Um, and it always looked like a tall order. And at the minute, we've got what they keep calling capacity for around 40,000 and um, around 20,000 a day are actually being carried out so um and then his other problem has been around ppe which um has just it's been a, a persistent problem since the beginning of the crisis really and again it's about about saying they can do things and and not actually being able to follow through on that for example this plane that was supposed to come from turkey at the weekend with numerous um, pieces of ppe on it didn't arrive until days later um the health secretary last week said that they might run out of protective gowns by the end of the weekend um, so it just looks like that they're forever um, mm. saying that they can deliver this, that and the other and not actually being able to to, to get around to doing it. Yeah, Jess, Labour's taken kind of a, 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 an approach as an opposition to try and be constructive, but do you think mm. it's time to maybe be a bit more openly critical or... But the thing is, is you can, you can criticise parts of the system, but... For me personally, and I think that the the route that the Labour Party um, has taken and will continue to take is that criticism has to be for an outcome. There has to be a purpose for that criticism. So criticising and pointing out problems. So one of the big stories this week was about British businesses saying that they could supply PPE and it being sent um, abroad because no one had got back to them. And one of the major, the one of the, the main companies was in my constituency that that story hinged around. And for weeks, I have been trying to be reasonable and point them in the direction of the government, point them in the direction of our regional mayor, trying to make the system work. And it wasn't until it was, you know, there, there were lorries from Italy traveling through my constituency to pick up PPE while I'm trying to get our local school to give goggles to the care home that I you, you start to think well actually now I'm going to have to start criticizing and since that criticism um, the government the cabinet office have now been in touch with that company and the, and the wheels are starting to turn so I think that there is absolutely space for criticism and pointed criticism um, but for me personally, I think that the test is is what's what solution does that criticism bring about? Um, and that's the sort of area that the Labour Party will continue to operate in uh, until we know that people are safe. And then, you know, let's leave the, the sort of post-mortem, for want of a better word, until afterwards, because now we we just all want things to work. That's that's the top and bottom of it. I think I think one thing that's really frustrating, perhaps for the public around PPE, is that you know we'll hear Matt Hancock come out and say, "Oh, we've delivered one billion pieces of, of PPE," and then we we see other stories about um, care homes manufacturing their own PPE, and you think, well, what there is, and I think Keir Starmer put his finger on it when he says there's a mismatch here between what the government's saying and what's actually <laughs> happening on the ground, and I think. That, the communications around it continues to be pretty bad. You know, they kind of should be bringing the public in much more than they are at the moment. I mean, how they much have, have... Go on, Jess. They have in Matt Hancock in that regard, the perfect politician. I have never known another politician be quite so unflappable in the face of criticism. Um, <laughs> Matt Hancock, 
I remember when he, um, I, I can't even remember what job he had at the time, but he basically was the, got to be the person who was the face of uh, paying the under 25s less than uh, the minimum wage, essentially making a different minimum wage for those over 25. And I started a Twitter hashtag at the time about how, literally at the time my womb which had given me two children by the time I was 25 was more productive than Matt Hancock after he said, <laughs> <laughs> after he said that 25s were less productive and it was like more productive than Matt Hancock at 25 and people were saying you know I was a scientist and I had a PhD I, I'd been a policeman for eight years by the time I was 25 and it went on for days and days and days and then I bumped into him in the commons and he was just like oh Hi Jess, how are you? And I just thought <laughs> he's beyond embarrassment, isn't he? He is, he is beyond embarrassment, Matt Hancock. And, and there have been times when I have absolutely crucified him on things, and then like rung up his office to ask a question, and he is genuinely chipper. So um, that there is this terrible mismatch that comes with that sort of flak jacket that they are putting out to say enormous numbers when genuinely in you know I had an email yesterday from one of my care homes that said the residents testing let alone the staff testing and how well that's working which it isn't working that the residents testing took six days for them to get results on five different residents in a care home and they were all positive so no risk strategy can be put in place in the meantime for the staff or isolating the other residents when it took six days to get the results on a test. And then Matt Hancock just goes out and says, it's fine, we're increasing capacity. And we're getting this terrible, terrible impasse of reality versus the press conferences. Mm. And I think that's, that you're right. That's probably going to have to, the real test is the end of April because they keep telling me and other people that actually there's this hockey stick curve. They're expecting the number of tests. It's going to really shoot up at the end of April. If that doesn't happen, then I think there really will be consequences. If it does happen, then obviously it could transform things. But, you know, obviously people have heard that kind of promise before. But I think Jess is right about the schools, you know, I mean, a lot of people out there, it's their number one concern. I mean, I, my son's in year 10 like yours, Jess, and he's pre-GCSE. And, he, you know, you're right. I, I make sure he gets up on time, doesn't oversleep for registration, all that stuff. But, you know, so Michael Wilshaw said yesterday, maybe year 10s will have to resit their entire year next year because some of them will have been behind so far. Now, that's such a massive issue for lots of people, but no one's really talking about it. And, um, and at the same time, primary school kids, it seems like there's brand new research coming out in the last couple of days that shows they're, they're virtually immune uh, and that under 10s don't even carry it. They don't pass it on. Uh, for some reason, their bodies are actually able to cope with this. And so there's, there's a growing sense, I think, that maybe primary schools could open first. But again, we're not being given any real detail. Yeah, Paul, do you think we're not being given any detail because we're waiting for Boris Johnson to come back and no one can take a decision without him? There's an element of that. I think that's true. But the problem is we don't know how long it's going to be. I mean, I suspect, you know, there's this big date, May Day, where everyone thought that he might be back and he might do some big sort of uh, VE Day type celebration where, you know, 
uh, that was so uh, that's so far from reality now that you can't possibly declare quotes victory over coronavirus just like commemorating <laughs> victory in Europe. So I, I, I can't imagine that will be the point. But I do think they'll get uh, that weekend because the bank holidays shifted to the Friday. I suspect the following week is when we'll get Boris Johnson back, or or, re, or even any clue to what the exit from mm-hmm. lockdown will look like. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, yeah, I've been hearing from Tory MPs. There's massive pressure within the party now because I think MPs all around the country, Tory, Labour, whatever, are hearing from businesses, plenty, loads and loads of businesses who are basically on the verge of going bust, and that pressure is only going to build. Um, but let's move on um, because, as well as crippling the economy, one of the unintended consequences of the lockdown is a growing concern that it could trap victims of domestic violence with their abusers. Uh, The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, earlier this month announced a new campaign and package of support for victims, but does it go far enough? Let's hear her. I'm clear about this. It's the perpetrators who should be the ones that have to leave the family homes and not the supposed loved ones whom they torment and abuse. Our priority is to get the abusers out, but sadly this is not always possible. So where a victim and their children do need to leave, we will ensure that they have a safe place to go to. Um, Jess, I'll come to you first. Uh, the government announced uh, two million for online support services. Is it enough? No, it's absolutely not enough. Um, it's welcomed, of course, uh, because we need to increase the capacity for people to make that first phone call if they need help. But it does nothing for what happens after the first phone call. The sector have been getting into, as have I, been getting in touch with the Home Office and um, the the Department for Communities and Local Government and Housing since literally the first week of the lockdown, reporting increases in demand as well as um, strains on services and service funding to enable people to have either accommodation or support that they would need in the community past the first call. And so far, the government have yet to come up with any sort of joined up solution for that. They keep pointing to the money that will go to local authorities or go to charities more broadly and keep saying that's going to go to domestic abuse victims. And I am hearing uh, that they they do intend to prioritise in some cases uh, domestic violence charities across the country country with that funding but you know we'll be entering week six of this crisis and the murder rate has doubled um before we even know whether they can get extra funding it's just not good enough and I think that uh, whether it's to do with the fact that Priti Patel largely to me seems to just be missing in action across the board in this crisis and the home office you know it seems like years ago, doesn't it? But just two weeks before the crisis, the Home Office were having, a, you know, an un- almighty row with uh, their civil servants raging on. And it just feels to me like the Home Office have dropped the ball with coordinating this for the, the country. Because I, I know that um, the uh, Victims Commissioner told the Home Affairs Select Committee last week that you, it would normally be, I think it was um, two a week and we're looking at five a week now, domestic uh, domestic abuse killings. I mean, that's just shocking of, of itself. And it's kind of, I think one of the one of the things that's come up with a couple of family workers that I've spoken to is that it's really difficult for um, potential victims to even make that initial call because often they have the, they have the, have the perpetrator sat next to them so and it's also difficult for social workers to to go into homes and speak to women so it's just how do they get this initial practical help 
this I mean, this is all completely right. So it's not even just uh, the fact that people can't go to work and people can't go to school. And so there's no release valve. There's no opportunity uh, for releases. Even those who were accessing service prior to the lockdown, you might have been going to a coffee morning. You might have been uh, meeting on your lunch hour with your independent domestic violence advisor. You immediately eliminate the ability for people. And you'll have social workers now having to do Zoom calls into people's homes while the perpetrator sits in the background. This it's not an ideal situation and there is no way that we could have ever eliminated the risk of the lockdown it was always going to be a risk but we could have had a proper strategic plan to mitigate it for both um, adult victims of violence and abuse but also child victims that the data on the number of children who are known through child protection plans who are currently going to school even though we were assured that they would be in school it, it's very, the, the data is like between five and ten percent. It's really, really low. And it just doesn't say. And also what you you know, I'm hearing is that you'll hear anecdotal data about how A&E um, incidences of domestic abuse are going up. And I heard some uh, harrowing data today about a rising increase potentially in the number of women committing suicide compared to the number of men that commit suicide, which usually men outrank women in, in that category, 75 to 25%. But it seems like the, the rates of women is going up. But it shouldn't be me going to all of the local health authorities, to the A&Es. It shouldn't be me gathering this data. This, this I feel that there needs to be better coordination um, in the country. That's, I just want to know that this is somebody's job and that they're doing it. And I, I haven't been confident of that from the government to this point. Yeah, Jess, um, as you say, people are kind of cut off in this situation from even the, the small bits of support or places that they can go of, of safety. How do we get around that problem in a situation like this? Well, I mean, the, the, the helpline and the web chat um, services that have been set up by Refuge and Women's Aid, uh, certainly the web chat and lots of local organisations are setting up their own web chats to try and find a, like a safer way for people to do it on their phone. Um, also, the a much better and improved police response actually seems to be occurring because so many other crime types have reduced. So people aren't um well, either people aren't committing burglary uh, or people aren't reporting it because they're trying to give uh, people uh the police space that has all happened um however the so the police have been able to increase some of their more proactive work but the the truth is is that what we have to do when like i say we're never going to eliminate it is that when someone does make that call and the numbers of calls to the helpline have massively increased so they are able to make those calls we have to not open an enormous door into an empty room. There has to be a solution, whether that's accommodation to flee to, whether that's a support service that can set you up with a, a sort of safer, less risky way to communicate with them and put a risk plan in place. But it's that bit of it that worries me. What's interesting is that I asked Matt Hancock about this very issue a few weeks ago, and he seemed totally blindsided by the whole idea of domestic violence going up during the lockdown. And he was very unusually tongue-tied about it when I asked him, why can't you coordinate what some of the charities are asking, which is use some of these empty hotel rooms, for example, as, as you know, instant sort of pop-up refuges. And, and there are so many empty hotel rooms and they're near lots of people. Um, and yet they didn't engage with it. Do you think, Jess, that maybe the government should have 
there may already be a minister responsible, but should they should they make it much more clear which minister is responsible across government for domestic violence? Yeah, I think it goes to a little bit of what um, I, I saw reported that Tony Blair had said um, about there needing to be a sort of better, more a breakdown of which minister is responsible for which bit of the crisis. Because, you know, Matt Hancock is shouldering a huge amount of uh, burden and, and lots suspect he's being... Uh, you know, left to be the full guy or the scientists are left to be uh, the full guy in the future. Um, I, I do really think that they're needed, not just for members of parliament, but for the, the sense uh, for the sector, for social workers, for local councils, that, you know, this is the person who's going to be in charge of this. This, These are the briefing meetings that they will be holding. This is how you feed in. That would have been considerably better from the beginning. Um, but like you say, you know, I mean, we want to help. And I, I sp I've spoken to all the big hotel chains, university accommodation, um, youth hostel associations, Airbnb, all of these people. It's not that we're not talking to them and they are offering help. It's that I think there is a genuine block on the worry about what to do in the hereafter, because what the government don't want to end up with is a situation where they have to turn out hotels and tip out people, vulnerable people in post lockdown. But the reality is, and maybe this is because of the seat that I represent different potentially to most of the ministers uh, who are involved in this, is huge amounts of homeless people live in hotel accommodation in my constituency anyway um and the reality uh, of this lockdown ending completely within the next six months seems unlikely even if it is eased off but i think that that's what they're frightened of is turfing out vulnerable people but they're going to have to do it with the homeless people because they put in the everyone's in project they put everyone in hotels yeah there's going to be some other things that are kind of difficult to unwind as well like the the more generous universal credit for example yeah yeah <laughs> i still don't think that any of the ministers would want to live on it <laughs> uh, sure hey jess just while we've got you on this um obviously every year you read out those awful statistics in the house mm -hmm. of commons um and they're drafted by karen and gala smith mm -hmm. what did you make of the fact that she had her application to join the labor party turned down recently I mean, as somebody who has worked with Karen for many, many years, long before I was ever a member of Parliament, she is an absolute stalwart of the violence against women and girls uh, movement. And I think that she's the sort of she's uh, been caught in the the crossfire of the the argument that has raged about uh, trans rights in the Labour Party for so long uh, now that seems never to benefit anybody but to cause contention and that we've got to get to the bottom of it, end it and, and recognise that people like Karen, Karen to me is absolutely no threat, but if others have made specific complaints about her, then they deserve to have them heard. But the, the culture war... It doesn't help anyone. It goes back to what I was saying about the government. You know, fighting has to have an outcome that's good. And it doesn't seem there's any good outcome in this particular battle at the moment. Um, well, yeah, speaking of Labour, Keir Starmer earned rave reviews this week as he took to the dispatch box opposite Dominic Raab for his first Prime Minister's questions. Uh, the new Labour leader was praised for his forensic questioning and ability to think on his feet. At one point, Starmer asked Raab how many social care workers had died of COVID-19 and didn't quite get an answer. Let's hear the exchange. 
On the latest figures, my understanding is that uh, 69 uh, people have died within the NHS of coronavirus. Uh, I don't have the precise figure for care homes. They're more difficult to establish in relation to care home workers as opposed to care home residents. But I think we can all agree in this House, every one of those is a tragedy, and that can only uh, double down our efforts to tackle this uh, uh, virus and do everything we can to support those amazing workers in the NHS who are delivering so much to take the battle to the coronavirus. Keir Starmer. I thank the First Secretary for giving us the figure in relation to NHS uh, workers, and of course a tragic case, each and every one of them. I'm disappointed we don't have a number for social care workers, and I've put the First Secretary on notice that I'll ask the same question again next week, uh, and hopefully we can have a better answer. Um, Paul, you went into Westminster for this. How was Starmer and what was it like at PMQs? Well, I went in specifically just to see what it would be like, to, how it would work, this hybrid system. And there were like there were 10 of us in the press gallery and there was a handful of MPs, obviously, on both sets of benches. Um, and crucially, we got a glimpse of what Starmer would be like up against Dominic Raab uh, because they were there both in person. Uh, obviously, it's it's not really representative of what PMQs is going to be like once Boris Johnson's there. He's a much different op- opponent to, to Raab. Raab, I, I get the feeling that, you know, Starmer treated Raab like the junior lawyer that he feels he is to him. You know, he's, uh, you know... <laughs> Rob's basically a sort of low-ranking solicitor, and you've got this high-powered barrister. And, it was, <laughs> but, um, and, and what was, but what was interesting is that he he got under his skin by you know thinking on his feet, doing the thing that you should think is second nature at PMQs, responding to the answers and then going on the attack again. Um, but I do think actually, although that courtroom quiet did help um, uh, I made the point last night that actually a bit of noise really helps an opposition as much as a government. I mean, Maria Eagle really got to, to Rob by just doing a constant heckle, saying pathetic, pathetic, your answers are pathetic. And it got to him. Um, and boy, will we see uh, a different uh, uh, contest when Angela Rayner is up against Dominic Raab. I mean, I can't wait to see that. But I think when it comes to, to Johnson himself, it's going to be interesting. He's a more formidable opponent. He'll have always troops on his side once we're out of lockdown. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. You can see Starmer winning PMQs, but as we all know, winning PMQs isn't really what ultimately matters. Uh, what does matter is... Do the public see him at six o'clock on a Wednesday looking like an alternate prime minister? And that ultimately will be what matters more than anything else, I suspect. Yeah, Jess, what do you think? Yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty good analysis. Um, I think that it did it lent um, Keir all the gravitas, the sort of silence of the courtroom, as if we were watching a courtroom drama. And you're absolutely right. You go in to see the sort of superstar lawyer um, dazzle the 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 other side, and I don't think that. As somebody who's been in courts lots of times, that doesn't actually ever happen in court, but it does happen <laughs> on the um, Courts are largely quite dull. Um, but anyway, um, but the, um, the, I think that the raw and the scent of like Yabu sucks that comes of PMQs, which lots of people complain about um, being ridiculous, but actually the public really quite like. Yeah. Boris Johnson is, um, he he will always have an armour um, in a way that uh, others won't. But I think that potentially, and it will be really interesting to see, I think his approach will be very, it, it won't give a lightning rod to Boris Johnson um and i 
for for a, a while I thought, well, that will be problematic for Keir, but actually I think it will be problematic for Boris Johnson. You need an opponent that Boris Johnson's whole po political journey has been uh, goodies, baddies, establishment versus the, he needs an antagonist. And at the moment that is quite, um, it is, I think it will be quite difficult, but it, it's, it is a weird situation for Keir to have to do that for the first time and I think he did a really brilliant job from what I saw. Um, just, just, just wanted to ask you as well, do, do you think Starmer was, was really all that or did he just look good compared to what went before? Um, I think probably a bit of both is the truth. That the, I mean, on Twitter, it was, I mean, because I didn't actually watch it live because I was on my millionth Zoom call of that day. Um, but uh, I then went back and watched it. Uh, but I'd seen the Twitter reaction. And I think that the, the sort of sense of Twitter feeling so relieved that it was Keir Starmer, I, you know, I think that potentially it trailed Keir Starmer's performance as if it was the end of Independence Day. Uh, and it was the <laughs> <laughs> So when I watched it, I was really like, oh, God, no, I'm doing a really good job. But I, so I think that there was this enormous sense of relief about the thinking on the feet and the ability to be um, really quite forensic. But it being forensic isn't just reading out words you have to have gravitas to be forensic you have to have a knowledge base about the things you are talking about that seems credible um and i think that keir had that in spades so regardless of his performance his credibility was was huge um in that situation but yeah i think there's definitely a there, there was definitely a sense of well this is going to be a different era yeah. It's interesting because because uh, I was in the Commons afterwards, I I bumped into a certain Jeremy Corbyn and uh, in PCH, and uh, he came up and and said, uh, "Well, wasn't that a bit of a non-atmosphere that chamber?" And and I said, "Well, it was a bit weird, wasn't it?" And then he said, "Well, it was about as exciting as being in the waiting room of a TV studio, Paul." Uh, but I'm glad I came in because it was a bit of history. So that that was that was that was his verdict. <laughs> Well, there you go. You okay, well, he's entitled to his views, of course. <laughs> um, I think that you know there is a difference between what happens in the chamber and the atmosphere in the chamber and what is seen on the TV screens, and it is there is a different world being in there and what you see. And unfortunately, what has happened in the past is that um, is that everybody wants their ten second Facebook clip, and so you you know it will be like really really dull, and then suddenly there's some jump thumping, and it's just like this seems really weird when you're actually watching it. Yeah. But, and, and I really, I hope that in the crisis, I actually don't mind the RB sucks element of it. I'm a bit of a shouter, so I don't care uh, about that so much. But I do really hope that there is an opportunity for actual back and forth to make solutions for the country that might come out of it. But yeah, that is that is a brilliant review by Jeremy Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Paul. Uh, Rachel, you picked up on something else uh, that was good for Labour at PMQs. Yeah, well, I was I was um, watching it thinking how it would go down with uh, red wall voters, you know, all the voters that Labour lost at the last election. And I think uh, they lost a lot of those voters because they saw um, they thought Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party kind of lacked patriotism and that it had become kind of um, uh, bitter and that it hated wealth and it had become kind of like a, a, a bit of a, a nasty party. And I think one of the things that he chose to go in on was that um, the government had failed to get in touch with a lot of British businesses that had um, um, offered PPE. And he, he was also just really, really 
polite. Um, and uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me as well was that ev everyone who was on the, the Zoom call was was like just really, really smart and had like a, a suit on and just looked the part. And I think a lot of red wall voters will really, really like that, actually. I don't think I think one of the things that sort of well, I'm, I'm from the northeast and I've noticed that um, sort of cities, people who live in cities are kind of much less um much less bothered about whether you wear a suit or not. And I think actually looking the part and um, representing your community and looking like that is kind of, it does actually matter. Things like, small things like that do matter, I think. They definitely, definitely matter. That my nan would have, you know, she, she wants you to just to look spick and span. But you're absolutely right that like sort of, sort of, when you go to, you send your kids to school, even in the city, like this idea that working class kids are scruffy, that you sort of gets represented. It's entirely the other way around. Middle class kids got odd socks on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I there are in the press gallery who've got the, the most raggedy shirts of their toffs. I know that. Yeah. I, yeah, I dress more smartly for a night out in Leeds than London. Let's just say that. <laughs> 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 right right let's move on it's time for the quiz since we're on the topic uh, this week's is a kind of mps through the keyhole uh and i'm going to ask it's kind of a memory quiz i'm going to ask you about the backgrounds that mps were showing uh in their homes as they were asking questions at virtual pmqs it's worth pointing out at this point that all we can see in the background of uh, jess's screen at the moment is a white wall so nothing to report there um Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Flowery cushion and a nice lamp. Uh, <laughs> so just pipe up. There's no, yeah, just pipe up with the answer if you know it. Just shout it out. Um, so question number one, which MP had signed footballs in the background and bonus points for naming the football team that they came from? Oh, God, no, I can't do that. Was it Ian Blackford? It yeah. was Ian Blackford. Was it, um, was it Aberdeen? I don't know, actually. I don't know who it was. No, Aberdeen. Celtic. No. Dundee. No, all right. Uh, no bonus points, but Jess gets a point uh, for Ian Blackford, and it was Hibs. Who had a model of the Queen and her corgis in the background? Oh, my God. I didn't even clock that. It was quite, um, quite uh, subtle. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I know Des Swain had a Union Jack, but that was today, not yesterday, sadly. Oh, that was oh, insane. No. Um, sorry, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, okay. I've, I've just rewatched it as well. <laughs> All right. Was it someone from the SNP? <laughs> it was Faye Jones. Who's oh, Faye okay. Jones? Well, that's what I thought when she popped up. Uh, <laughs> uh, final question. So Jess is ahead. She's currently winning, so chance to draw it for Paul or Rachel here. Um, who was the only MP to stand up to ask a question? I know. Jeff <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of shouted first. So I think, yeah, resounding 2-0 victory for Jess there. Well done. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm done. better at this. I'm going to have to make it harder or something. Um, you are. You are. You know, it's such a shame David Cameron's not an MP anymore because, you know, he famously removed a copy of a Hitler book from his backdrop <laughs> TV <laughs> In an interview, well, Alphon had about five Hitler books in his backdrop. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really have bookshelves. I'm going to have to put my Kindle behind my head when I appear. <laughs> um, but we, um, the only bookshelf really in my house is full of like manga and um, graphic novels because my husband is a massive graphic novel fan. And I was filmed uh, during the Syria votes uh, in front of it. And honestly, there are still like 
crazy Reddit threads about how cool I am. I've never read a single <laughs> one of those. Books. Never, never a single one. But I'm, I'm, I'm definitely considered to be like you know, sort of cult in some, in some form. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Cool tough post, guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely need to see that background again. Um, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately that's all we have time for this week uh, thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday and be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes we'll just leave you with some extraordinary scenes from Wales where Health Minister Vaughan Gething sparked the world's first political scandal involving Zoom after forgetting to mute himself while on a call with other assembly members I know Jenny is regularly right at the end it's like what the f*** is the matter with you let's get died to be a little bit turn his microphone off Jenny as well it's a meal saying can you tell me what you're doing Jenny right now can we ask members? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.